Welcome to episode 168. Thanks so much for listening. Today, we'll be discussing 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 to 16. You can find links to all of my resources at philsbaker.com. And if you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on our Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. You can also check out my catalog of podcasts on my show, The Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker. Also, I've got a new book, The Final Abominable Temple, which you can purchase in audio, digital, hardback, and paperback formats on Amazon. And if you've read it, please consider leaving a rating and review there as well. And finally, we're blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency. And you can find links to all of our content there at omegafrequency.com. All right, well, let's get into episode 168. All right, Steph, so we're getting into a very um, difficult subject matter, especially considering all that's going on in the world today. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, specifically verses 13 through 16. And uh, I just want to put a disclaimer up as we're going to be talking about some things that might sound just as we even read the, the scripture, it might sound anti-Semitic, but neither you nor I uh, think any less of Jewish people. We do not want to see any Jewish people harmed. And I don't think anyone in the scriptures that we're reading from today would think any less of Jewish people or want to see Jewish people harmed as well. Right. We got to remember that the person writing this, Paul uh, and Silas and Timothy were all Jewish. Now, Timothy, to be fair, his father was a Gentile, but his mom and his grandmother were Jewish. Um, like I said, Paul and Silas, they're both Jewish people. They don't want to see harm happen to the Jewish people, which is why even though they're being persecuted, uh, especially uh, in their first missionary journey in the Southern Galatia area of like Lyconium or Iconium, Lystra, um, they continue to keep on going to the synagogues. After they say enough of this, we're going to the Gentiles. They're like going right back to the synagogues, right? So Paul definitely wants all people to be saved and especially as countrymen, uh, you know, we, we got to remember in uh, Romans chapter nine, he talks about how desperately he wants his fellow Jewish friends, family, uh, you know, just people to be saved that he wishes that he could basically go to hell. If that would mean that his Jewish brethren, according to the flesh, would be saved. So it's just something to keep in mind. This is not uh, anti-Semitic in any way. And we're going to see that as we go along. Paul is actually saying a message that other Jewish people in the gospel and in Acts have said as well. Okay? So... Let's get into this. Uh, if you don't mind, Steph, we'll read verse um, 11 through 16, just to give a little bit of context. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles 
that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. All right. When Paul talked about walking in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, he says, he said that kind of stuff in Philippians, if you remember. Um, and he talked about um, live as a citizen and he, as a citizen of, of uh, heaven, basically. And so we're supposed to citizen that. And so walking in a manner worthy of God's kingdom, we talked about last time would be living like a citizen of heaven. And we read the uh, Beatitudes to close out that last episode. And one of the last ones was, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas and Timothy are doing. That's what that happened to them at Philippi. They were persecuted for God, for Jesus's namesake. They were persecuted in Thessalonica for the sake of the name of Jesus. And um, they continued to have that happen to them. And Paul is saying, guys, actually that happened to you as well. You Thessalonians experienced the same kind of sufferings that we had, you also were persecuted for the sake of the name. And um, the reason that they were willing to do that is because they received the word of God as what it is, truly the word of God, not the word of men or false prophets or anyone trying to just collect money or build their platform or anything like that. Paul and Silas and Timothy we're speaking the very testimony of Jesus Christ. And for the most part, the Thessalonian believers received it and it performed its work in them. They became imitators of uh, Paul and Silas as they imitated the Lord and really lived out the gospel message. They repented of their sins. They turned away from idols to serve the living God and in the midst of much persecution and did it with grace. And they continued to be evangelists out throughout that, um, that area that they are in so that everywhere Paul is going, the reputation of the Thessalonians is heard. So they're setting an example for surrounding communities, which is pretty amazing. But um, well, let's talk about these words received a little bit they received the word and they accepted the word. So this received word paralambano is uh, kind of like someone who aggressively lays hold of something. Have you ever seen a, a kid aggressively lay hold of a gift? Yeah, for sure. What comes to your mind there? I mean, if you see, well, maybe not even a gift for them, but it's like the last of something. I've seen a lot of students in my class that would dive to go grab the last piece of candy or they want to, they're going to get it for themselves. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It would make me think about like how we celebrate like adoption day mm -hmm. for our kids. And sometimes they see a present and they're like, sometimes they're hesitant. And other times they go get it mm -hmm. and they aggressively rip that wrapping paper, you know, off and it's still a gift. Right. Even though they're aggressively going after it. And if they just leave that gift there unwrapped, it's still a gift, but it doesn't become theirs because they don't want it. Right. But the Thessalonians aggressively laid hold of the gift of the grace of Jesus Christ. And uh, they took hold of that word of God and internalized it. That word accepted, uh, dekomai, means to like welcome someone into your home. So uh, it would be like you have a guest that wants to come and, and the paralambano is like grabbing the guest and bringing them in. And the dekomai is like being so hospitable in one sense. Like, come sit in this chair. What can I get you? You know, make yourself at home. This very welcome 
receiving, but it also involves this high level of self-involvement. And so the Thessalonians did that with the word of God, which is, it's, it's really cool to think about the testimony of Jesus, which doesn't make sense in a lot of ways as you're reading those Beatitudes. Any of those Beatitudes do you remember just don't seem to make sense from like just a normal person perspective? That the meek shall inherit the earth. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like these people, I mean, meek, meekness has like, at least in a general sense, it's almost got like this timidness to it and the way that it sounds like mm. it's, the ones that that are passive almost are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It's we think the opposite. The the ag- aggressive ones, the ones that seek after it and you know make it their end. Yeah, and and meekness has this aspect of gentleness, though. So it you know the kingdom of God is aggressively moving forward. It's violently moving forward, and the violent you know lay hold of it. You know, but it's with gentleness at the same time. You got to think about like Jesus is aggressively and violently pushing his kingdom forward into the earth, but he is doing that in this gentle way toward people as well. He's very much like it's self-control, you know, where people are trying to kill him all throughout his life. He may call them to repent, but he doesn't throw them off the cliff. Like they're trying to throw him off the cliff in his hometown. You know, he's, he's always like checking any kind of fleshly temptation, keeping himself restrained to only do what God is calling him to do and no more. It's a, emptying himself of his right to do, you know, what he maybe wants, you know? Yeah. Now this word, it performs its work in them who believe. That's an awesome phrase there. What are some of the things, Steph, that um, should happen in a believer's life? as they are, if they're sincere? Um, well, I mean, they should show evidence of fruit of the spirit, probably. Mm. Yeah, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, yeah, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For sure. Now, are those going to automatically um, spring up? Possibly, but probably not. Mm. Yeah, it's probably going to, be developed through time spent with the Lord and through life experiences. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that parable of the mustard seed. And so it is really there in the ground and it's growing, but it starts off kind of small maybe, but it is smoothly, gently moving in an aggressive kind of way to take over the whole garden in a sense, but it's, it's slow, but steady growth. Yeah. So performing its work in, in them who believe if the seed is the Holy Spirit that's put into us, um, which is uh, another of the same kind like Jesus, which is kind of uh, maybe why Paul in Philippians one calls the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus, Luke calls that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus in um, Acts chapter 16. So if that's what's being deposited in us, then if we're truly giving ourselves over to that and not choking that seed, then it should be changing us. The Holy Spirit, he should be changing us slowly to become more like Jesus, which is kind of why the believers are first called Christians in Antioch. And Peter in 1 Peter 4 says, like, if you bear the name of Christian, like consider it 
a glory almost, consider it a blessing to suffer for that name. And why would Peter say that you should consider it a blessing to bear that name? Probably because it's used as a term of derision or mockery. Look at those little Christians. They're willing to die for this guy, die for their enemies. That's ridiculous, you know? And Peter's like, no, take that name as a blessing. If you're imitating Jesus, that that's evidence of the Holy Spirit being in you and that you're a child of God. Um, and that's uh, what Paul says in Romans 8, basically. But uh, yeah, so Paul says, you brethren, and this, let's go back to chapter two, looking at verse 14, you brethren became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you endured the same kind of sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Now, this is an interesting uh, turn of phrase that Paul has because brethren is a familial term. And that should be how he talks about his fellow countrymen, the Jews. But he makes a distinction between the Thessalonian believers, whether they are of Jewish nationality or, or Jewish race, you know, or Gentile nationality, if they're believers in Jesus, he calls them brethren. And yet he distances himself from these particular Jewish people who are persecuting those who believe in Jesus. He calls them the Jews. What do you think about that? I mean, I I keep thinking about how it seems, you know, maybe harsh what Paul is saying, but I think that when you think about the Jews, like something that's really striking me is just how committed they were to preserving or keeping things holy and set apart. And, you know, the idea that this Messiah was not what they had expected, even though it was fulfilling all these prophecies, it was not, Jesus did not come as they expected, means that he was not truly Messiah in their eyes. And so they're trying to protect and preserve, and but they're going about it in a way that is preventing the actual good news of Jesus from being spread. So um, yeah, it's just, it's really unfortunate that they, are putting so much effort into trying to, you know, quote unquote, like please God with these actions, but instead they're they're missing that God came in the flesh and that they are going to, you know, just like everybody, you know, they're going to face judgment one day and they they don't know Jesus as their savior. Yeah, because Jesus is that promised seed of Abraham that would come and be a blessing to the world. And Paul goes on, goes to great length in Romans and in Galatians talking about that promised seed, that promised uh, son descendant of Abraham. And that when you, if you believe in him as Messiah, now you are a part of Abraham's family as well. You know, in the old Testament, they, uh, Israel is called uh, God's firstborn in Exodus. So they're, they're part of the family of God in a sense. And so now if you are believing in Jesus as that promised seed of Abraham, the descendant of David as well, then now you are part of, you've been born again into God's family. So these are now your brothers and sisters, but people who reject Jesus are no longer your true brethren. Now it's cool how Paul tries to like encourage that when he speaks to the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, he's like appeals to them as brethren, as he tells his story, like he's trying to pull them in 
to that family. Like your, like your brother has like run away from home and maybe he's like changed his name, you know, he, he's completely distancing himself from you. And, you know, you accept that, but you're like trying to bring him in. Bro, come on, brother, come back. That kind of language. Well, let's get into what happened in the church at Judea, um, how they suffered. Well, you know, that church in Judea started in Acts chapter two. And um, if you remember, like these are all Jewish people and how are they acting? Well, they received Peter's word. This is in Acts chapter two in verse 41. So this is after his first sermon. It says, so then those who had received, and that's a similar word there, Peter's word were baptized and that day were added about 3000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You see how close knit these people were. Welcome each other, welcoming each other into their own homes, being so devoted to each other being so devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayer. And Paul is, I think, including this. They became imitators of the church in Judea. That's what the church in Judea did when they received the word of God. So the Thessalonian church was really healthy at first. But as we keep on going, they endured the same kind of sufferings at the hands of the Jews, verse 15, who killed, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Now, Isaiah 53 talks about basically how God is the one who kills the Messiah. Jesus says like, no one can take my life from me. It's mine to lay down, to lay down. It's mine to take back up again. It's in John 10. And we know the Romans oversaw that execution. So the Romans actually nailed him to the cross. And yet Paul goes, even though the church at Thessalonica is predominantly Gentile, he doesn't appeal to that. He talks just about the Jewish involvement. And why is he doing this? Well, Paul is carrying on a tradition of the way that the church talks about that event, particularly when they're talking to Jews, when they're witnessing to Jews. This is how the Jewish Christians talk about the death of the Messiah, okay? So Stephanie, can you please read Acts chapter three, verses 11 through 15? And just to set this up, this is Peter and John, both Jews that are talking to a group of Jews who have gathered around them after the Lord through Peter um, healed a crippled man at the gate called Beautiful. So there's a Jew, two Jews who are now talking to the group and an predominantly Jewish audience all around, Jews everywhere, okay? So, uh, Stephanie, can you read that for me? While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw, saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. All right. So he includes Pilate in there, but who is the main culpable party in Peter's address there? Jews. 
particularly the Jewish leaders, but he it just lays a blanket statement there. Now, he's also including himself in that in one sense. You remember, he look at verse 14. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one. Well, Peter did that too. He denied Jesus three times. He is not shying away from his own guilt in this. He's not. He's part of that. But this is... He's, he's appealing to them. This is the Jewish God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. And this is his servant. And that would make them think of the servant songs from Isaiah, like Isaiah 52 and 53. It would make them think, as we're going to talk about later, of the servant of Isaiah 49, which we'll get into. But you killed the author of life. That's hard. Well, let's go now Let's go to Stephen. We'll move forward. This is Acts chapter seven, verse 51 through 53. So Stephen, again, Acts 7, 51 through 53. Stephen is a Jew. He is a righteous Jew. So just remember this as well. This is not a Gentile. And he's part of the church at Jerusalem. He's, you know, he's one of those like really serious Jews, you know, but he believes in Jesus as the Messiah. So this is him after the Sanhedrin brought him in on trumped up false charges. And this is him just laying it on the line. You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Anything standing out to you in that? Yeah. I mean, I think the um, stiff necked <laughs> and just you know the stubbornness they're they're missing missing what's in front of them i guess mm. and that's a great point because what are they missing look at verse 51 again the last phrase what's the last phrase as your fathers did so do you oh i'm sorry before that one the second to last uh, phrase uh you always resist the holy spirit Huh. So what is the Holy Spirit trying to do? Point them to Jesus. Yeah. The Holy Spirit does not want these people to go to hell. Right there. I mean, Stephen is rebuking them. And part of that rebuke is God is trying to bring you into his forever family. But you have to believe, you have to repent and believe in the righteous one whom you killed. He's not saying you're going to go to hell regardless because the Holy Spirit has already determined that you're going to go to hell. Because if, if the Holy Spirit, if God had already determined that these people were damned to hell for all time, regardless of any actions in, the, in, in their future, then resisting the Holy Spirit would actually be repenting if the Holy Spirit wants them to go to hell, if God has determined that they're damned to hell, that's what the Holy Spirit's plan for them is. Then resisting that would be trying to repent. You see what I'm saying? But they're not resisting. They're not resisting in that way. They're resisting the one who's trying to bring them to himself, which also shows a lot of free will in this by the way, because showing God's pull on them. Hmm. So uh, that's just um, it's a, a little bit of pushing back on tulip. Yeah. Irresistible grace. They are resisting the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I digress. Let's keep on going. I, I, I do want to share a little bit of early Christian stuff because this is an early Christian podcast. 
Um, there's a lot of uh, anti-Nicene stuff from Justin Martyr that we could read, but I thought, let's go to Melito. Melito isn't somebody that we talk about a whole lot. Melito was one of the most famous uh, apologists of the latter part of the second century. Extremely famous. And Melito was the bishop of Sardis, and he was a convert from Judaism to Christianity. Some people would say he's like a completed Jew, you know. He believed that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's Jewish in his roots. So this is a Jew, okay? Just putting that out there, just like Paul, just like Peter, just like Stephen. We'll get to Jesus in a second. Also, all of these people are Jews. They are not anti-Semitic, okay? So this is Melito. This is about 170, okay? He's writing about Jesus. He says, this is he who was born of Mary, fair sheep of the fold. This is he that was taken from the flock and was led to the slaughter and was slain in the evening and was buried at night. He who had no bone of him broken on the tree. He who suffered, not disillusion within the earth. He who rose from the place of the dead and raised up the race of Adam from the grave below. This is he who was put to death. And where was he put to death? In the midst of Jerusalem. By whom? By Israel. Became he cured their lame and cleansed their lepers. He gave light to the blind and raised their dead. This was the cause of his death. Thou, O Israel, was giving commands that he would be crucified and you were rejoicing and he was buried and you were reclining on a soft couch and he was watching in the grave and the shroud. O Israel, transgressor of the law, why hast thou committed this new iniquity? subjecting the Lord to new sufferings, thine own Lord, your own Lord, him who fashioned you, him who made you, him who honored you, who called you Israel. But you have not been found to be Israel for you have not seen God nor understood the Lord. You slew your Lord and he was lifted up on a tree and an inscription was fixed above to show who he was that was slain. And who was this? The king of Israel slain with Israel's right hand. Anything about that standing out to you? This Jewish writer. Yeah, I think that a lot of this is just striking me that this language is like an intervention. It's... I mean, same with Paul. It's it sounds harsh, just like an intervention is, and sometimes it's it's the most harsh harsh language that you might use towards somebody that you care about when you're trying to get their attention and um, communicate an emotion behind something. Like I I want this for you. I want something better for you, and I'm I'm broken for this area that, you know, just this blind spot in your life or whatever it might be. But it's it's that language and it can only come from somebody who really loves you. Like an intervention that's done by, you know, the guy that's in your geometry class isn't gonna mean anything, mm. you know? It's, yeah, that's, a, that's great. And also in an, in an intervention, the one who is the focal point of that often feels extremely defensive yeah, and like will say you know, will say things like you hate me. Mm. Yeah. And that's not the case. Yeah. It's pleading for their soul. Like yeah. it's it's yeah. yeah. It's going to come across harsh, but it is because if if this doesn't reach you, then I don't know what will. Yeah. It, yeah. That's that's good. Let's continue. So this is uh, continuing in verse 15. So Paul has already said they, they both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. 
they are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. Now, this kind of a thing happens often with Paul on his missionary journeys that whether it's Jews from previous cities or Jews from Jerusalem, like these people are trying to get Paul out, drive him out. And uh, we see the the first, well, not the first instance of it because it happens uh, in Damascus first, but um, after that on his first missionary journey, it happens in Acts 13 in Pisidian Antioch. So Steph, would you mind going to Acts 13? And you're gonna read Acts 13, verse 42 through 47. Now, Paul has uh, already addressed the, um, the synagogue there. They, they asked him to speak. They recognized that he was a dude you know, and they're like, yeah, address us. And Paul preaches the gospel to him. And um, we'll see what happens here. 42 through 47. Yeah. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told, told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was being spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, this is an incredible passage. In verse 46, well, before that, why are they trying to, uh, why are certain, a certain group of the Jews trying to get Paul and Barnabas out of there? because they're filled with jealousy. You see that over and over and over in Acts. And it's something that Paul says was designed by God. He says that in Romans 11, that the, the Gentiles coming to faith is designed by God to produce a jealousy in the Jews to like try to wake them up. Like, look at, look at what's going on. Now, what's going on is really interesting. Paul and, and Barnabas in verse 46, they say it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Now that word repudiate it is, <laughs> it's throwing something from you. Yeah, it says thrust it aside in my version. Yeah, like I know this is a crazy analogy, but I remember one time when a like flying roach flew on my face. This is not while I was sleeping. Not that time. <laughs> this is a different time when I was like out in the woods and I like felt something like fly on my face and I caught it and I saw it was a roach and just like threw that thing. Cause it's yeah. like, you're so repulsed mm-hmm. by this. And that's what Paul is saying they did. Can, can we talk about how many times you've had roaches this on is, your face? This has happened, unfortunately, at least two times. That's never, no times for me. Yeah. No times. Consider yourself blessed. <laughs> yeah, but like they throw that. And what was it? It was the opportunity to have eternal life, like Paul says. But then he adds in this, this verse from Isaiah 49, which is really interesting because in Isaiah 49, God says like, you are my servant Israel, whom I formed from the womb to bring back Israel. You are Israel to bring back Israel and Jacob. But it's too small of a thing. It's, it is too small of a thing for you to just bring back Israel 
in Jacob, for I have appointed you to be a light to the nations and to bring my glory to the ends of the earth. So this is clearly like a messianic thing. And it's really interesting where God is calling his servant, the servant, you're, you're the real Israel that's designed to bring people back. It's Jesus. It's the same servant from Isaiah 52 and 53. It's pierced for our transgressions. That's the real Israel who suffers to bring Israel back. It's not the people, it's Jesus. And yet Paul applies it to himself and Barnabas. And he even applies it to the people that those Jewish people had an opportunity to take part in the calling that he and Barnabas have taken on, which is for Israel to be a light to the nations. They're in Christ now. They're in Israel, the true person of Israel, which is Jesus. And our job, our whole job was to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And you don't want to be a part of that. We brought this to you first because you're Israel. This is your calling. This is why you're here. And you don't want that. And notice how he doesn't say God judged them unworthy of eternal life. He says, you judged yourself unworthy of this. You didn't want that. You viewed it like a cockroach on your face. Get that as far away from me as possible. Yeah, he's offering them what was to be their inheritance mm. and they're rejecting it. So they, it wasn't what they expected. And for people that, that know the book so well, that's, that's unfortunate. You know, you have an idea of how something is going to be, but there is all these prophecies that are being fulfilled in Jesus and they still, you know, have been blinded to that. Yeah. Yeah. God wants all people to be saved and to come to repentance, right? Yeah. And we see this over and over and over. And Paul is saying that these people are hindering us. And that's why they're hostile to all men. All right. So what's the result of that though? Because they are judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. So let's continue back in First uh, Thessalonians 2. Can you do me a favor and read verse 15? Start in uh, the second part of that where they are not pleasing to God, but uh, read all the way through 16. So 15 and B through 16. Um and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill so as always to fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them at last all right so that phrase with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins is actually first found like when i saw this i was like I've seen that before. I've seen that before. Where is that? Founded in Genesis 15. Now it's also in Matthew 23, but not exactly like it is in Genesis 15. Paul is like literally quoting Genesis 15. This is a wild connection and we're gonna show a, a, much, a person much smarter than me make the connection also, but so this is Genesis 15, starting in verse 13. This is where God is like reaffirming his promise to Abraham and making covenant with him. And Abraham believed God and God credited to him his righteousness. That's all in Genesis 15. Then uh, starting in verse 13, God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Egypt, right? But God had called them into the promised land. But first they got to go to Egypt. 
So why do they have to go to Egypt for 400 years? Well, there's a reason. 14, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age, verse 16. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, has not been filled up. The iniquity has not been filled up to the full measure. That's it. It's like basically word for word. Now that's really interesting. So God was being patient with the Amorites, calling them to repent in different ways, giving them time. They're not, but there's a certain point where God says no more and then judgment comes. Now these Amorites with the addition of the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, all that kind of stuff, like they're going to be completely wiped out by God. At least that's the plan that they would, they would be, uh, they would have the harem pronounced on them, which means the ban, which means you kill every man, woman, child, animal, everything, completely wipe them out so that God's people can receive their inheritance. Paul uses that same phrase. So this is uh, G.K. Beale uh, in his commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. It's a little bit long. Try to stay with me, okay? Because he's speaking about this, this whole phrase, this phrase and this verse and how it connects to Jesus as well, okay? So he says, the concept of filling up sins occurs elsewhere at significant redemptive historical epochs or epochs to describe the opponents of God's plan to subdue the earth with his truth, with his truth by his redeemed people. God stated in each case that his enemies had to complete a certain amount of sin before they could be considered ripe for definitive judgment, which would always conclude a particular epoch and launch another. For example, God prophesied that Abraham's, Abraham's descendants would not emerge from Egypt until the sin of the Amorites was filled up. Israel's rejection of Jesus fulfilled or completed the prophecy that God would blind the nation spiritually. Israel's hardening is a decisive judgment that has come upon the majority of the nation. The closest New Testament parallel to our verse is in the gospel material, especially Matthew 23, 31 through 38. That's in the seven woes. What do you scribe, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, right? There, Jesus tells the Jewish religious leaders to fill up the measure of their ancestors' sin, which included killing and persecuting or pursuing God's prophets, sages, and teachers. That they always or continually fill up the measure suggests that more than the Jewish generation of Paul's day is in mind. All prior Israelite generations who sinned in the same way are in view, though the present generation is the focus since in them, the sin of the nation as a whole comes to a climactic conclusion in the rejection of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's a lot. It's a lot, but basically what Beale is saying is that Paul is continuing to preach what Jesus preached. And you see that over and over through his letters. Paul is not preaching a different gospel than Jesus. Paul is preaching Jesus's word. He teaches by the word of the Lord. He brings that and you'll see that over and over in first and second Thessalonians. He's just saying what Jesus said. 
and Jesus is a Jew. But Jesus also, at the end of Matthew 23, he's like, oh, Israel, how I long to gather you like a mother hen to her chicks, but you are unwilling. But that's his heart. That's why, you know, Paul will say like, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. Where's he getting that from? He's getting that from Jesus because that's Jesus's heart is to bring them in. That's what he wants. Any thoughts? No, I mean, I think it's just, it's so, it's not like it was surprise to Jesus, but just imagining the, the feeling of like, you're the ones that I came for. And I, I know that there are plenty that, chose to follow Jesus that, you know, were of Jewish heritage and they chose to follow Jesus, but just that he he came and he suffered to demonstrate his love for the world, but specifically he came, you know, to the Jews first, but to be, you know, rejected in that way. It's just, it's so hard, but yet he still comes at it with a father's love. Yeah, and if you pick up in Romans 11, like Paul answers that question because some Jews were saying like, well, God has rejected us. And Paul's like, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In fact, he has preserved a righteous remnant for himself that he like built this from. They're the trunk. They're the the core of the vine. Um, These believers in in Jesus, in the promised seed of Abraham. God has preserved that. And Paul's like, I'm proof. I'm proof of that. That God has not rejected his people. Stephen is proof. Peter, John, Jude, James. They're, they're proof. God has not rejected his people. Silas, Timothy. No, he wants them saved. So but they have to believe in Jesus. Let's come to this last phrase. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Now he's not talking about all Jewish people. The reason that he says the Jews, he's saying that he's, he's like separating them from the brethren who include Jews at Thessalonica. He's separating from them because they have separated themselves from Jesus. They do not believe in Abraham's promised seed descendant. So they have separated themselves from God through unbelief. Paul says in Romans that only one thing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Only one thing And he says that in Romans 11, it's unbelief. And that's not doubt, that's rejection of Jesus as Lord. That's unbelief for Paul. That can cut you off. It does cut a person off. And the Jews have been cut off, not all, but the majority. Yet Paul says in Romans 11, that if they repent of that in belief in Jesus, they will be brought back in. But as it stands right now, they are cut off from their inheritance, from eternal life. Is Paul just making that up or is he quoting Jesus? Does Jesus have anything to say about that? Yeah, he does. He does. Let's uh, go to John 3 and let's read John 3 verses 16 through 18 and then verse 36. Okay. So 3, 16 through 18 and verse 36 as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe 
is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what do you take away from that? I mean, that we have to have Jesus. This all comes back to, you know, there is, God cares for all people and God had a plan, you know, regarding the Jews. And that was how he chose to have his son enter life, you know, in this this form. And And then as one of these people, of this people group, and to be the fulfillment of the prophecies that are long awaited. And apart from him, there is, there's no eternal life. It doesn't, there's not a pass for some. Yeah. Now it's interesting how that concludes in verse 36. He who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, if you harmonize that, okay, we we believe that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, right? It's going to harmonize. Well, what is Jesus calling them to do? What's the command that they're supposed to obey in order to have life? Well, then you bring in 1 John, 1 John verses or verse 23. First, sorry, first John 3, 23. First John 3, 23. This is his commandment. This is God's commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. He who does not obey the son does not have eternal life. Here's his commandment, that you believe in the name of God's son, Jesus Christ. Darkness is light There's no surprising you I came trying to hide Disguises you see Right through But you stay Your love remains Yeah!